When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. Alright guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hey there, this is Bill Behrens. I'm called the Agent of the Stars, and I need you desperately to listen to Crazy Train Radio. If you do not, you are just a big gunky. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc. Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it wouldn't be right for me to do so, so I'm going to pass the buck Dr. Mike, our longtime close personal friend, as uh, Gene Oakland would say. Dr. Mike, would you like to do the introductions here? This is a, a man I have long respected without blowing smoke up anyone's ass. So this is not for children of all ages, perhaps, because he and I love to swear. But I have the utmost respect because this guy really goes to bat for his talent. He's known as the super agent of wrestling. Um, there was another one that we lost, Scotty Epstein. But Bill Barons has been all over the world. 
we were talking uh, about Jonathan and I for the last couple of weeks, that 2007 fiasco where I was in touch with Bill at the Cow Palace. It should have been called WrestleCon, but that name is trademarked for an ethical wrestling fan fest. This thing was Russell Fan Fest. Bill, if you remember, husband and wife scumbags who fled with the cash boxes meant to pay the wrestlers and the MMA guys after their three days. I think I, if I remember right, I think I was my people were actually pray. Actually, I had their money and they were the rare example. I told you that and you told me and then I told everybody that. Yeah, because Bill got the TNA talent from the Dudleys on. Uh, money up front or the talent wouldn't arrive because everybody else got effed on their money. And I was the guy because I was the hired photographer with a rubber check for the event. But I had to go out that third day Sunday to uh, Goldberg's limo, to Steve Austin's limo and China's limo. And a uh, local San Francisco Mark eye doctor was the one at least footing the bill for that stuff to tell them what a effing mess this was. Not even the Ring of Honor talent or Gabe got paid for putting on a tremendous show. So every one of these wrestlers, they all agreed to go through with it, even when they found out they weren't going to get paid. And the worst scenario of this, so the only guys that got paid was because Bill is so effing wise and smart to demand money up front. So this is a guy that will go to battle uh, for his talent. He's the one that introduced uh, on so many levels the great, phenomenal AJ Styles to, to wrestling. Uh, and well, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about the NWA big weekend that Bill is going to uh, at Keel, excuse me, Keel and the wrestling at the Chase the, that I shot at many times in the '70s next weekend for uh, Billy Corgan's NWA huge weekend there. Uh, but Bill, welcome to the show, and man, it's good to talk to you after. Uh, well, we only talked on the phone, and I think the first time. Yeah, was I, I was actually saying that to our co-host uh, earlier that. We've known each other for decades, but I don't know that we've ever had met. This is the closest to actually meeting I think we've had because I don't count phone and, you know, and email and stuff, but we've communicated forever. So, you know, it's nice to finally get together and be able to share some stories. And, and, and I understand. And I want to say this, too, though, uh, as much as, as I said, a pain in the ass he could be as a friend, promoter or whatever. Mr. Carney himself, we lost Howard Brody uh, today. I'm going to dedicate it, uh, the show today to Howard, who I just found out about. He had quad bypass surgery last week and didn't pull through it. But, um, you know, you have dealt with so many characters, only in wrestling type characters. And it isn't blowing smoke to say that you take great pride and love of the biz and the people therein to as you did in 2007 and many times since. I mean, you really are respected globally by talent, et cetera, and promoters for all the, the good things you do. I mean, not a, not one person has ever said one bad thing about Bill Barron's. And a, you get, should get your flowers while you're alive and know that because that ain't true of 99% of the people in the biz. Well, as one of my favorite clients, Mike Posey, likes to say, I try. So that's that's sort of my gimmick. And, and, and I'm pleased we're dedicating this to Boom Boom, Howard Brody. I always called him Boom Boom, which he hated. And, um, <laughs> but Howard, uh, and, and I, I, I've been mad at Howard more than I've been happy with Howard is just the truth. Uh, and I won't go into the detail on the things that may be angry. But I will say that without Howard, um, the NWA 
uh, Howard and Dennis Carluzzo. Without Howard and Dennis Carluzzo and Bob Trobitz, the NWA wouldn't be available for Billy Corgan to be doing what he's today. And even though it was a cluster of how it got there, I was able to be involved from 1999 until uh, it was lost by litigation. And uh, fortunately, it was redeemed after that. And Howard got me in. Uh, I was Howard's vice president for three years before in uh, right after his Florida show where AJ wrestled Chris Daniels uh, for the first time and broke out as a real star or even after WCW, which Howard was responsible for. Uh, and we had the terrible cage match that I had with Howard where they screwed up and I never would do a feud with him. But Howard resigned from the NWA then. So he had, you know, from 99, when I got involved, he was in 98 until 2001. He was the guy and he was doing a wonderful job. And I wish he had hung in there and not become a contrary force to what we were doing because it, it ended up never not going well at, at the end game for any of us. Let me tell you something quickly, because I emailed you this. I don't think you got to see it right before we started Crazy Train Radio here with Jonathan Steele. But um, Coraluso was a good friend of mine. Now, he was a carny guy and a character. Love. He was the most dishonest, honest man I've ever known. It uh, literally <laughs> he he literally would tell you that he was going to rip off a group of nuns. And he would tell the truth. He was the a totally honest, dishonest man. He never ripped anybody off without doing it right to their face. <laughs> it was brilliant. Well, something to be said for that. Hey, I love Dennis. I knew he had these other issues. God rest his soul. But he would bring me out and put me up at his house for these NWA meetings that started, I'm guessing, 92, because Steve Ricard was there, Trobich and Brody. And I've got the photos. So it was like, whenever that started, you know, maybe 92, 93, but did before, you go? Did you go to the? Uh, I think it was ninety-eight one, the fiftieth anniversary, the one that Luthez no. was at, and Harley and. Oh wait, wait, no, the one in Tampa. No, 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 the one that was in um, uh, crap, New Jersey, that uh, that uh, Dennis promoted. And no, I don't think I was at that one because I forget when he died. It was like ninety-nine or something like that. But no, no, we had a cauliflower alley. I helped. You, you know, and I know you're you're from that area. You're in Atlanta, or maybe a suburb outside of Atlanta. I forget yeah, where. Because yeah. I've got family in Calhoun, Georgia, and in the early '70s, I used to go and beg my in-laws and relatives to take me to the Atlanta City Auditorium, uh, where I think it was a Christmas show '73. It was one of the weirdest Styles Clash matches I ever shot. Blassie just visiting family there. You know, he wasn't a regular whatsoever in, in Atlanta for promoter Paul Jones. Not the worker, but the promoter Paul Jones. And he had what turned into a semi-shoot with Bill Watts because Fred wouldn't sell for Bill. And it was as almost as goofy as the ultimate Styles Clash I ever shot, again involving Blassie as a heel against Billy Robinson at the HAC Arena in Honolulu about the same year, 73 earlier. I never, so, I, I, I've been to Atlanta City Auditorium. I saw Dory and uh, Jack do a 60 minute Broadway and a tag with the Sheik and Abby 
against Andre and Wrestling 2. That was the main card. And we ended up doing an article for our college paper. This would have been 70... Five, six, somewhere around there. But it was like it. And, and the great thing was at one point, I mean, the, the Abby Sheik team basically just didn't get along, of course, you know, go figure. And uh, and Andre and two just, you know, after doing a, a few babyface spots early, just sat in the corner with two on Andre's shoulder, <laughs> you know, just watching as Sheik and Abby started brawling. And then all of a sudden, cops ran up the hall aisleway. And, uh, <laughs> started wielding their billy clubs all over the place and i'm sitting with all my friends from college i was the wrestling guy uh we had interviewed rocky johnson that day and uh <laughs> and, and and the cops just beat the crap out, out out of somebody we don't know who we figured oh crap you know chic abby and then all of a sudden they're just dragging fans out you know that was the atlanta auditorium it was like they the cops went in beat the crap out of the fans dragged them out so that abby and she could brawl and, Jonathan, uh, excuse me for one sec, because the first guy, I ran the Sheik's fan club in 66, his international fan club. Then with John Arisi, we took over the Fred Blassie fan club from my Mike LaBelle, L.A. territory. He was my boss. And when he became the PR guy for Mike LaBelle, he had to give up the fan club. And then in seven, late 72, I started the Tolis Brothers fan club, you know, living in L.A., their ringside photographer. I also did it for Shire as his only ringside photographer for uh, his program, you know, for Northern California, but um, Les Thatcher of the Atlanta office, starting about s- late 72, early 73, he and Bob Armstrong used to send me clippings from the newspaper programs, and Les started writing for my newsletter about his shoot as you could do then, you know, it was a straight Larry Matisic type commentary thing for me to use. And was a guy I've kept in touch with since, and I wish I had with you. Did you take any pictures of that? Any of those? No, great- I. W- it's, oh. It was one of those. Uh, I've had many in my uh, career of cross wrestling and other things. Like I was a a rocket concert reviewer. This is just an example of how stupid I can be. And I was one of the things I was offered that the record company wanted me to do is I was supposed to ride in the limo with the Sex Pistols wow. when they did their u.s debut which happened to be in atlanta and i was aware of you know they weren't necessarily normal you know and you know and and regardless of whatever drug use i was familiar with it was probably way beyond what i would be comfortable you know so i just i said no you know so i look back on those kind of things and go oh you know that was just sort of dumb but no i went to this thing and didn't think to bring a camera we were going there. We did a, a, a tape interview because we we were doing it for Black Studies in, at Emory University, uh, where Mike Sager, a very famous uh, writer, who uh, his article about John Holmes became Boogie Nights. So, wow. yeah, good guy. So anyway, he was in college. A bunch of us, we went there. And the premise of this thing had, I forget what it was, but it was wrestling black folk and something. I have no idea, but it involved black folk and it was part of the class and the teacher liked it. And my gig was to get there and get an interview with an African-American wrestler. So um, I got contacted Paul Jones's office and I said, OK, you've got two guys on the card, you know, and you've got uh, you've got Rocky Johnson and you've got Abby. And they said, well, clearly you can't talk to Abby because, well, he's a wild man from the Sudan. So I went, okay, cool. 
Um, then he said, well, you can talk to Rocky. So I said, cool. So I, we went up and we got a few minutes with Rocky and my, one of my favorite moments was I, you know, did the young guy interview spot with Rocky going. So I don't really want to ask you this because I already know the answer and I think it's insulting, but is wrestling real or fake? And Rocky said, what I can tell you honestly is that everything you see actually happens. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yes. So was, that was one of my earliest experiences. Literally, that mid-70s was the first experience I had until I began putting wrestling TV on in the 90s and then got more involved when Jerry Jarrett called me in 1993. I'm, I'm going to throw it at Jonathan, but I want to say this because with my advanced dementia, I'm going to probably forget it, but guess who Abby asked two years ago, and he hasn't lifted a finger to co-write his autobiography with him, me. And uh, (laughs) this was on a a COVID con podcast where I had him and uh, Terry Funk and some others, you know, we all did interview spots for this marathon, raising money for people in the biz affected by COVID, not able to do fan fest or wrestle or, you know, do anything appearances and, and we're losing significant income. But, uh, uh, now he's happy to you know, be called Larry Shreve. He'll talk to anybody. You know, I, I he actually on. did one of his first autograph signings for me. Um, I always got along with Butcher. I always got along with Abby. But I, and it was uh, because he kept saying no. And then I had him at a show and I said, what the fuck? <laughs> Just do it. And I forget where it was, but it, he it, he did the first he did the first time he was in Wildside for a minute and we did ads for him on our TV show with him and Honest John and his son. Did he get uh, rid of Honest John? Where is that guy? That well, guy's uh, uh, Billy uh, Billy Robinson, Honest real name, uh, wonderful man. Uh, he passed away unfortunately, um, and he was essential to Butcher in uh, you know the latter years of his career because Billy would drive. Butcher everywhere because Butcher's narcoleptic and falls asleep at the drop of a hat. So if you he can't drive anywhere because he'll fall asleep on the road. And, and his real name was, of all people, Billy Robinson. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and he a uh, big, big, gigantic guy, talented. Yep. Oh guy, yeah, no, I met him a zillion times at every Russell Con. He was always there, and I go, "Who is this, Mark?" It's like a hanger on. But, yeah, he seemed that way, but he was essential to Butcher. I mean, literally, man. without Billy, Butcher would not have gotten around as he got larger and less mobile. But he was in the wheelchair like 2011 when I'd see him. And so now that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and Billy was with him from, I mean, I first used them in 97. So that was the first time I was using Billy and Butcher. Oh, so that's how Jonathan, that's how long they were together. Because don't Billy kill me, Jonathan. Away. Listen, yeah, Billy to this. passed away Abby, maybe a year ago. Abby debuts for us in L.A. in 1970, but he came in to do our TV at KCOP Channel 13, yep. the shittiest low power UHF, and it was right off Hollywood Boulevard in Fairfax near yeah, Farmer. They finally Park. they finally got full power though. Bless their hearts. They they finally were upgraded. <laughs> but listen to this. So Abby debuted. He came over. You know, he had a program with Baba. 
He even met him on one of our Battle Royal shows, and he had a match with Rocky Johnson at the Olympic Auditorium. But Abby came in with a midget manager, and for the life of him, he can't recall who that was, if it was somebody that, like, Jeff Walton set him up with from a talent agency. But he had a heel manager doing all of his talking, and this was when he was 1970. I, I still, I think I coined the phrase, skinny Abby, because I brought it up with Dory Jr. this morning. That, that Abby could actually, it was like New Jack when he was in good shape, could the, the skinny Abby, just like New Jack, could actually wrestle. I mean, literally could oh, yeah. hip toss, you know, hip toss all the different moves, not just elbow drop for Abby or slice and dice for Jack. Jack did that at XPW one time. I, he told me he was in the opening match, and I said, well, you can do all your shit, and when it's all over with, how do people follow you? Or do something else. So he went out, and he brought a, a tra <laughs> he brought his shopping cart of, of stuff up to the ring, and then he ran into the ring and did hip toss, hip toss, arm drag, arm drag. And, and everybody in the back is going, what the hell is going on? New Jack is wrestling. Because <laughs> nobody, nobody remembered that he could. Oh, I did from WCW, <laughs> but I better throw to Jonathan because you and I could talk for three hours straight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And none of this has any direction at all. It's just all over the place. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's the fun. Exactly. And I was telling Mike in an email before this, I'm letting you take the lead because I like there's times like this I enjoy sitting back and listening to the stories. But two things I want to bring up. Well, first one, because you guys were talking about Abby and I always tell this story. I think it's hilarious just because we all know of the character that Abby was on screen and everything else like that. And we were backstage of a show of an independent called three PW back in the day in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah, Jasmine St. Clair. Jasmine Amini's thing. Yeah, yeah, I work with them a lot. Yeah. And so they had Abby in, you know, for a show. I think it was at the uh, Electric Factory, which is a famous venue here in the Philadelphia area and such. And so, you know, show's over. Things are getting packed away and everything. And a couple of us are just sitting in the back talking. You know, Abby was kind of holding court. And sure enough, Somebody had their kid with them, you know, worker or whatever. I can't remember who, but they approached him and said, uh, Mr. Butcher, is there any chance you could sign an autograph for my kid? Weighs him over. Yeah, come on over. But he's like, the funny part about him was like, how much you want for the kid? I'll give you $50 for the kid. Right? <laughs> like, like, yeah, Ab Abby's odd sense of humor. All right. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you $75 for the kid. You know, I was like, yeah, he signs the autograph and everything. It was quite entertaining because the kid's sitting there looking. Dad, you're not going to really sell me, are you? <laughs> hey, you never know. I, I uh, Actually, I'll, I'll do two short Abby stories okay. just because we're on an Abby crit. And one is a Howard Boom Boom Brody story. So, you know, in tribute to Howard. So we were in Charlotte for two, uh, crap, what year? Uh, 2000? Uh, uh nwa anniversary show and abby was gonna work oh golly i forget the guy's name um don somebody a, a big black kid out of detroit um and uh he had never that kid had ever bladed so that was an issue and howard was having the tear this terrible time with abby getting him to understand what he needed done and getting abby to agree and i walked up and Howard is just like sweating. He's, you know, if you've ever 
if you were ever around Howard when he was exasperated, it's just very entertaining. Um, it's like Foghorn Leghorn, but Jewish. Now, what's that? I see. Now, what's that boy up to? Better check on it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he's just going crazy. And I go, so what's the problem? And he goes, well, blah, 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 this. And Abby needs to do that. And in, in this match, and he went, well, uh. And I looked at, <laughs> looked at Butcher and I went, so Abby, uh, what about please? And he went, okay, boss. And he walked away. And, and, and Howard looked at me and said, I've just spent 15 minutes trying to explain to him what we needed. And you just said, please. I said, yeah, that's all he needed. So that's the first Abby story. Second one is he worked a guy in my building named Ruckus. And at one point of the match, this fan hit the ring and we had to drag her down a lady. We had to drag her down before she got into the ring. And in the back, Abby smoking his cigar, sitting like he is trying to tell me I had offered him more money than I had. <laughs> and, and, uh, in walks Ruckus, and he brings the lady that had jumped the rail, who proves to be his mom. And the mom says, you know, and Abby says, you know, and Ruckus says, uh, Mr. Abdullah, I really want to introduce you. This is my mom, and she's sorry. And she just goes, you know, she has attitude still, and she's going, I just want you to know, Mr. Butcher, if I made it to the ring, I would have hit you with this, with this, you know, hat or whatever she had. And he said, yes, ma'am. And if you had, I would have I would have cut you with the fork. <laughs> wait, wait, was Ruckus the guy that was the super talented kid in Ring of Honor? And no, no, no. That's the oh. C, that's the CKUS Ruckus. This kid was a kid out of Georgia that was very good, but he oh. he only got out as far as he did. But fortunately, they had different spellings. OK, unlike ahead, the sorry. homicide I had in in uh Wildside that became murder one that had to change his name because of well homicide you know D pretty much gets homicide right so anyway with Dennis Carluzzo and the stories you guys were joking about with him uh, was it not much of a surprise back in the day with the whole NWA tournament thing and with Paulie pulling a fast one because Paulie's Paulie and whatnot so was it kind of like coming back to Dennis? Uh, well, uh, yes, and, and from a Jersey thing, yes, uh, I wasn't involved then, but the whole thing was, uh, you know, Dennis had was a promoter in the area. In theory, they were cooperating, but the greater theory, because remember, there was also the Joel Goodart thing is sort of had was sort of associated with Eastern Championship wrestling. Oh no, more, it morphs more than anyway. Joel, I'm doing uh, the photos for Joel's book with Scott Teal. Joel can the very last show in 92 that i already japan had sent me my uh trans and my hotel it was going to be buddy rogers against landell nature boy versus nature boy doc and gordy against crawford and furnace a terrific card yeah. abby peak rematch in the cage because i shot all of joel's dwa and um so uh, joel claimed financial problems shuts down twa but his number two guy todd gordon I guess gave him X amount of money to purchase it and morphed it into Eastern Championship Wrestling. So that TWA actually good. Yeah, art. yeah. That they they literally morphed and that then all of a sudden the talent thing, because a lot of the excess that Joel liked to book, like he did an amazing three match thing with Eddie Gilbert and Cactus 
that was also way too much. You know, and that was sort of Joel's stuff. I, when I was getting it back in the time, it was, I like that he's trying to do all this stuff, but there's he's hurting himself by trying to do too much on every show. I always he thought had, it was over- That thing was, I was there. It was three different step matches between Cactus and Eddie. Yeah, by the time they got to the last match, nobody cared. Because they had done everything. I mean, it was at this point, it was like drop the cow at the cow palace. It's all you got. There's nothing left. Um, and that was uh, the problem I think Joel had was he was just so much in love with the hotshot aspect of it. Um, and then Todd got started with the uh, Eastern, and it was a little more traditional at first until Paul got there. And then they decided to go crazy. And Paul's success with ECW was much more his ability to protect marginal talent and find a way to make them stars because at the very beginning, the guys that got over at the beginning weren't their best workers, you no, know, it's dreamer and uh, public Stan enemy man and Tommy Fierro Fierro and, Tommy and public Tyler. enemy and fucking public enemy. Public enemy was their first breakout, you know, two guys, you know, uh, two guys, guys. Yeah, two guys in their forties, basically <laughs> uh, one guy that can barely remember he's going to the ring sometimes. And the other guy that had been under the mask says, what was he, Cheetah Kid? Yeah, exactly. Ted Petty. Yeah. So he just recreated this one. You you guys will not believe this one because I was close to Dennis and he would let me stay at his place even when I'd come out to shoot Joel Goodhart's. But he then did a Tom Robinson benefit with his arch enemies. You know, he professed hatred for Joel and Todd. So he puts on it. People thought Tom uh, Robinson, who was a longtime fan wrestler, was dying. So he does a joint show with Todd Gordon. And I posed Todd with Cora Luzo. They legit hated each other. I had them pretend to strangle each other with stately Wayne Manor, Ernie Santilli trying to break it up in the middle. All only Philly Jersey people would get this. But after this brings I'm going to throw it back to Jonathan after the Shane Douglas thrown down the belt deal after a full two day Corluso big convention shows uh, NWA meeting I had to shoot um, uh, Dennis and his pal also passed away Fat Gino Moore that's what he called himself they went and slashed Dreamers and Heyman's tires at ECW arena for, you know, like the show immediately after, or the second one after the Shane throwing down the belt thing, yeah. they went and slashed the tires it was like snowy at the parking lot of ECW arena. Yeah. Yeah. Gita was great. Uh, all those guys were great because they weren't people I would ever do business with, but it was just, just a joy to know they existed. Uh, you know, it was, uh, they were literally wrestling mafia. <laughs> it's like it, in the way they would do everything. You know, and then they had, you know, their uh, Dennis even had their own fake attorney and in Mr. Fred, Fred Rubenstein, you know, it was like, you know, who was pretending to be their lawyer. And it was just like all ridiculous nonsense. It was fantastic. I won't say anything about the name. I have to tell you one quick Dennis story. I'm sorry. This is very quick. It's very quick Dennis story. It happens to be true. And with all apologies to the Iron Sheik, but everybody knows this anyway. So anyway, I book I book Sheiky Baby. Um, but the first time I booked him, Dennis wanted to facilitate it. So this is really early on. I'm VP with the NWA with, with Boom Boom. And uh, and Dennis is still involved, but nobody's going to give him any authority nor let him get anywhere near the money because, well, it's Dennis. <laughs> and so we're, I, he says, we'll 
do a three-way call with Shiki and I'll help you work it out. And I go, blah, 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 Shiki, blah, 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 this outdoor show, you'll work Bob Armstrong, blah, 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 blah. Um, and this is what I'll pay you. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. Uh, and he tries to get more and I say no, and it is what it is. And then out of nowhere, he goes, oh, Dennis, uh, so uh, will I get the medicine? And Dennis goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get with Bill and I'll make sure you get the medicine. No problem, cheeky baby. And he hangs up and I call Dennis and go, OK, Dennis, the rate is fine. I'm good because that's the budget. And what the fuck is the medicine? And he goes, oh, well, you know, you need to go get cheeky some cocaine. <laughs> and I went, no, <laughs> I no, I am not getting cheeky cocaine. So you need to call cheeky back and tell him there's no freaking medicine. And if he's going to bring any. I better not see it anywhere near me or I I won't pay him his money. So that was my introduction to both Shiki and one of my great dentist experiences. For dentists, was, yeah, no problem. You know, yeah, you book Shiki, you get him cocaine. That's what you do. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's Shiki, baby. <laughs> well, I got another one where... Evan Ginsberg, another historian I've known for 40 plus oh, years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice guy. We are babysitting. We are asked it, 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 these quarterly has been movie and TV. And, and these are, I, I, I'm not saying that as a, a derogatory term because there was a lot of big people, Ron Howard there, but it was uh, legends of movie and TV. And they did it. Uh, the Fields family would do these, and they still do since the pandemic, every three months at the Burbank Airport Hilton gigantic room you know fan fest where the talent aren't uh they don't pay anything to get their vendor tables but then i guess in exchange for you know having these famous stars they that can be advertised so they'll sell a shitload of tickets so evan and i are babysitting cause iron chic greg valentine albano uh nikolai volkov and i think uh like honky tonk man Wow, the only one that's going to be sober would be Nikolai. Listen to this. So she had not yet. <laughs> Just what I was thinking. Cosro had not yet been part of the freak show, first on Opie and Anthony and later Howard Stern. And I tell you, Shuley from Howard Stern paid me to babysit Iron Sheik for the West Coast swing of the Ronnie Munn block party, basically a tour of the Howard Stern Wag Packers and then some of the staffers who do stand-up comedy. So I'm in the limo making sure Cos gets to all of the venues like San Francisco, Sacramento, Modesto, Stockton, LA, et cetera. But um, back to the, uh, the fan fest and right across from us is Tracy Lords, the porn star and all these famous people, Marion Ross of Happy Days, and, and et cetera, and Ronnie Howard and stuff. So you, more, you, you had me at Tracy Lords and Marion Ross in the <laughs> same area. So Kaz stands up and he starts for no reason at all, as loud as possible. And again, remember, this is before he started doing this as a regular when they saw, oh, this guy's nuts. We'll bring him in. And, and I love Kaz because I met him. When he got out of the, you know, when Leroy McGurk and Vern Gagne were training him for pro as this decorated amateur, normal guy uh, from what, the Mexico City 72 Olympics, so 73. So Kaz gets up, stands up, and he goes, F, and he uses the full F word, Bob Backlund. He goes it over and over, F, Bob Backlund. I'll get behind him and Brian Blair and F them in the butt and make them humble. And he just starts saying this, and then he calmly just sits back down. And Tracy Lords, Marion Ross, 
uh, uh, Ronnie Howard, his brother uh, from the Channel Bend CBS Clint, TV show from Clint, 66. Clint, he used to live in my apartment. I grew up with Taylor. I grew up with Clint Howard. And well, Rip Taylor came to USWA at one point. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and the Billy Mummy from Lost in Space and uh, the kid from Family Affair, the play Jody, whatever his name was, something Whitaker. Yeah, uh, he, they were babysitting Rip Taylor. They all look at who on earth is this insane person, and it was just our Cosro, Iron Sheik. So I'll shut up because Jonathan hasn't had a chance to talk. Oh, pleasure for me, you know. I fuck you in the ass. Yeah, pleasure for yeah, pleasure for me. <laughs> Madison Square Garden, greatest city in the world. That's God. Uh, yeah, it's you know. I give you eight by ten with title belt for a beer. <laughs> you know, uh, we can. We haven't mentioned him telling Terry Funk in Puerto Rico before Frank was sadly murdered. The uh, oh, I give her the short clothesline, Terry. Why am I going to jail or something like that? That story that Bill might have heard of <laughs> more accurately than I did. No, no, no. A prostitute that caused, I guess she wouldn't put out. She didn't like the money. And he, he actually clotheslined her. Yes. I, her he, I heard a different version. Of, it might have been Marty Jannetty <laughs> that told that, the story. And, and again, makes perfect sense. Yes. Yeah. Should, should I tell that story? I should I leave that in the air. Out in the air. Well, go ahead. We're telling everything else. Yeah. So version I heard, and they were, it was WWF days in the later 80s. And this is before the whole Jersey Turnpike hacksaw with Sheiky Baby. And they're in like Iowa or somewhere out that way. And you know how rats can be and they had their usuals. Well, Marty had his eye on at least a version he tells is he had his eye on this new uh, trophy, let's say. Hey, Cos, can you keep an eye on this one the whole bit? So next thing you know, Marty goes to handle his business with this new uh, trophy, let's just say. And <laughs> so Shiki Baby goes off with this other one at their time in a bar, and he gives her some pills and Allegedly, I should say, there might have been some powder involved and this, that, the other. And a couple of drinks up in a room and something, like Mike said, might it not have been a agreeable or whatever the reason may be. No, no happy ending. Oh, yeah. So Marty finishes his business, comes out of his room, was going to come meet them back down at the bar and all. And it was one of those hotels that you would see out in the parking lot, out of the hallway. And so he sees an ambulance and a cop car, a couple of cop cars and all that kind of stuff. Hmm, I wonder what happened. See, obviously he was doing something else. So Shiki comes down to his room a couple of minutes later, knocks on the door, like kind of like sneak looking like the repo man. Marty, Marty, I need to come in your room quick. All right, what's going on? Comes in a room. Or excuse me, before Shiki Baby came down to Marty's room, the cops had maybe knocked on Marty's door and says, hey, do you guys know a Cosvo Missouri and play dumb? I don't know. So Cos comes down to the room and goes, Marty, Marty, I, I don't what well, the cops are looking for you. What happened? Well, same thing I told you. I gave her 
little medicine, a, oh, another drink or two, yada, yada, yada. She wasn't happy with whatever. And so I gave her a short clothesline. Marty's like, what in the hell is a short clothesline? <laughs> well, the best way to describe it would be that thing like Jake Roberts would do, where he must be pulling you in and just hitting you with the deal. And what Marty had seen with the ambulance and stuff was the original girl being put onto the ambulance and being taken to the hospital. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Not so a good night. Not a good night for the girl, and, and at least they survived. Yeah, and it's and it's the usual, you know, for the time period. Let's just say. Yeah, I I never I never had to deal with uh, him or or Marty at any level. They were I was around them. The only one I ever dealt with that had interesting experiences that could compare would be New Jack. Yeah, and that would be a light night for New Jack, but. On a more serious note, I'm curious to know. Obviously, you are agent to the stars. You talked a little bit about your NWA time and just a little bit. Of, we've been everywhere here so far. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which I enjoy and appreciate because there's nothing like wrestling and the stories that you get for obvious reasons, like the one I just told. And when we're being serious and you were helping a talent get a booking or whatever the case is. I'm curious to know, because it's not like any other business where there's a union or there's this or certain structures that you would see in other fields. I'm curious to know how you would go about handling somebody's business as far as saying, and I'll use AJ because I know you worked with AJ for a long time. And I'm not saying this is true because I don't know his business. I'm not the IRS. I could give two shits. But how would you go about saying, hey, if somebody calls Bill Barons and says, hey, I, I'd like to uh, bring in AJ. Well, AJ would like X amount of money. I would He would like this, like that. that you know, going through the business structure, you would to book said talent. How does that look like for you? Uh, it's uh, There's several types of representation I do. One is just a booking agent where I help people. Um, and But I'm not their agent per se. Like, I'll help Eric Bischoff. I'm certainly not his agent. I book Jim Ross. I'm certainly not his agent. I book Kevin Nash. I'm certainly his agent. Sean Waltman, not his agent. Uh, they're more friends. So if I get them their rate, and I babysit it, and they get what they want, whatever that rate is, I get 10%, and that's that kind of deal. And then there's the greater thing, which would be, are you, you know, is the guys where I'm involved in helping them craft their career. Uh, and AJ be an example of that. Christopher Daniels would be an example of that. Mike Posey would be an example of that. In recent uh, signee, two years now in, at A.W. Griff Garrison is an example of that. Yeah. Slim J, who just got signed there, is an example of that. And uh, you know, Hernandez, Abyss, uh, Ron Killings. <laughs> it, it, the list is uh, delirious, who ended up becoming a wonderful booker. Um, it's, those are the people where I've been more involved in helping them develop their talent and their position to make a living in the business, which is different. Um, what I determined early on in 
my experiences, uh, I was involved as TV boy in the USWA. I was involved in putting the USWA show all over the place. And I was working for WWF at the time because they were subcontracting the show and selling commercials and paying me, even though I didn't know the show, but that's how Jerry got me paid, Jerry Jarrett. Um, and then all of a sudden, Jerry Jarrett sold out for 260 some thousand dollars to Larry Burton and Lawler has it. And all of a sudden I'm booking the promotion uh, and I have no idea what, the, what I'm doing. And then thank God Dutch comes in and I get to learn from somebody that learned from Eddie Graham. Thank God. So now I'm doing that. Then all of a sudden it goes out of business and I'm a promoter with Burt Prentice and I'm still doing the TV stuff because my calling card was exposure. Um, and then after we did stuff in, and I joined the NWA and after we did stuff in Nashville, where we launched people like Shannon Moore and Shane Helms and, and folk like that, I started promoting in Georgia. We did the wild side thing. And I learned early on from a brief period of time trying to be a promoter that I am a terrible promoter. I do not have the patience. To be a promoter, you have to literally be selfless. You have to really need to do it. Um, uh, anybody can book a show. Anybody can rent a building. But to get butts into seats is a challenge, and only good people do that, and everybody else is just screwing around with money. And, and I was never a good promoter. But when I finally got a building that I was renting all the time, hooked up where I could produce my TV, and all I had to do was turn the lights on, then the business that I wanted to be in was created, which is to develop talent. So that's how Wildside transitioned the bad promoter I was uh, into the talent development person I became. And that led to me doing development for WCW. It led to me uh, putting Wildside out of business to have three dismal months trying to do development for WWE with Jody Hamilton and Billy DeMott. Um, but it, it gave me my direction. My direction was to try to drive young people and to make money, but I was never going to be the person that paid them the money. Now, the other side of that, too, is with that original thought, in question is how would say a talent decide what their face value is whether it's they're wrestling or doing an autograph appearance or whatever the case may be because rightfully so kevin nash may get more money than a griff garrison and i'm not disparaging either 100 percent right no but no, how no. did because obviously and, you don't want to say and I there's, and, there's and there's thousands of difference potentially yes but you know you it's you want to get what you're worth but also you don't want to out price yourself to where you don't get the gigs that you might be looking for if that makes yes. sense uh the people that make the decision on that are promoters and fortunately promoters and i mean this with tremendous love because i need promoters but it's great when promoters are fans and promoters are marks because when they believe somebody is worth a lot of money, they are. And until a promoter believes people are worth money, they're not. Um, every time a promoter bitches about a rate, I always point out promoters have total control over the value of the wrestler because all they have to do is say no. And then that person doesn't get booked. 
if that person needs a certain amount of money. But it's the promoters that perpetuate whether somebody is a perceived star at any one time. And that's why in, you know, frequently, and you'll see a cycle on the indies where there's a flavor of the month and only a few of the people have real plans on how they're going to grow their rate. Anybody I work with has a plan. AJ had a plan when we left TNA after they were idiots and we went out and did Ring of Honor, New Japan and the Indies. There was a plan to rebuild him as a star. There was a plan with Griff Garrison to build him. There's a plan with a lot of these other people, but a lot of not a lot of other people have plans. You know, uh, Matt Cardona, wonderful plan. He came out and went, boom, I'm going to make myself a star. Otherwise, you're hopeful that what you've done before, particularly if you're already an established star, will get you booked. And that's one of the great shocks for many of the people to get released from companies, even after a lot of TV time, is they may not be the star they thought they were unless they're the flavor of the month for the promoters. So just being in WWE doesn't necessarily get you booked. Just being in NXT even more doesn't get you booked. It was just something you did. AJ, when he went out on the indies and did Ring of Honor and New Japan and the rest of the stuff he did that made him the star that got him to WWE, he was never promoted as being formally from TNA. Ever. Hmm. And yet he was TNA's most decorated champion. Ever. That's the difference. You, you, and, and what is somebody worth? It literally depends on the promoter. If I say this guy is 750 plus air plus main cabin economy air and private room hotel, then the guy goes, well, do I get the autograph session with that? I go, no. The rates I quote are either to wrestle, which is a job, or to sign, which is a job. If they wrestle, they assume they get to sell their stuff and keep the money. So you have to decide what you want. Oh, well, we're used to getting both. Well, okay. Probably not this time, <laughs> you know, or let's see if we can compromise. And that, again, it, it you know, promoters are in total control, though. Uh, promoters hate working with an agent because agents ask them intelligent questions. And okay. promoters prefer to not be asked intelligent questions. They prefer that you just do what they want and that you're desperate as a talent and that you want to get booked. Yeah, because the reason I was thinking about that was there was a certain talent having issues with a certain company now. It's supposedly had issues prior. And the rumor was going around about their potential convention price that they would want and it was like and i'm not in that business per se of booking conventions or matches or anything like that but i'm sitting there thinking well if this person x wanted let's say twenty five thousand dollars to do an appearance i'm like it i didn't see the value of it you know it's like where it's like it's, I'm going to spend the, that by, money. By, by the way, I'm not aware of anybody getting that kind of money on any kind of regular basis to do anything. Um, right. The a, a high end rate in appearance money is about ten thousand in general, yeah. but that you know that's for three four hours of doing stuff. 
what's good. A lot of guys think they're stars and try to start at twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars to find out they're a thousand dollar guy. So yeah, but it was like if I'm going to spend the twenty five for a big show, say Comic Con and all that kind of thing, it's like I'm going to. Sp- I'd rather go spend that money on these two talents. It would bring me the money back and then some. You Maybe. look at it as a business. Uh, but again, but again, it depends on uh, that gets back to me saying I'm a terrible promoter. It depends on what you think you can sell. If somebody says they're worth twenty five hundred and you believe you can make that money back, bless your heart, pay the money. I look at it differently for every twenty five hundred at a wrestling show. I always assume I'm selling a ticket for ten dollars because that's the generation I'm from. Mm-hmm. It's now 2025, whatever, but still the math is the math. But yeah. if I'm doing it, I'm going to go to book the 2,500 got a guy. Let's add 500 for air and hotel just for fun. If my ticket is, let's call it $15 just to have fun. I need to draw 150 people specifically because this guy's in my building. And will I do that? And if you're a promoter and believes you can draw that money, great. Same thing. If you're doing an autograph signing and you're charging $45 for a combo and the guy wants $5,000, you need a hundred and some odd people to buy that combo or you're wasting your money. But that's not my job. My job is to get the most money I possibly can for my client and they deserve every penny. And it's up the job of the promoter to make as much money as they can off of what they invest. And if they don't, it's their fault. It's not the talent. No talent draws money. Promotion draws money. Talent is facilitated by being promoted. But if you you can promote Jesus, and if nobody knows he's there, nobody's going to bow and genuflect. Exactly. And it was when you say that, I was thinking of the way al snow talks about it it's like if i put hang on his name hang on hang on al snow on my shirt right now (laughs) okay all right Uh, so uh, it's the way he tells the story is he it's if you could put your name on a poster whether it's a signing or a match or whatever the case is at a wawa a royal farm a 7-eleven whatever the case is to promote the show is the people who see that sign in the promotion going to spend a $10, $15, $20 to come see that person? Yes. So, and, do Mike- you get, and do you get the posters out far enough that enough people can see that it matters? You know, it's, again, it's not the talent. It's the voice promoting the talent that gets the talent over. And, and, and no matter, sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it doesn't work. I booked New Jack in a... Uh, I had New Jack book against Tommy Rich. Tommy no showed, bless his heart. Um, but but that just saved me money. And um, we were doing a nightclub in the African-American neighborhood in downtown Atlanta. We did a promotion at Clark College where New Jack was an alumni, where he was given an award at halftime of their homecoming game with New Jack being announced. We offered that the students could come for 50% off with an ID and I drew a hundred people. <laughs> it's, you know, what do you do? And I bought ads on uh, uh, freaking WWE programming on cable. 
And I didn't draw a dime in the middle of the neighborhood that I should have drawn with a talent that in theory should draw, who was just honored at a freaking college right down the road. What else do I need to do? But it didn't draw. I'm a sucky promoter. My <laughs> fault. I lost, like- a couple of th- I lost a couple of thousand dollars on the show. Jack got paid. Not his fault. No. Dr. Mike? Uh, hopefully you guys can still hear me. But that tells you the amount of time and money that sometimes agents and promoters, et cetera, lose in the face of making sure the talent gets paid and entertaining the fans and all of that. So kudos to Bill and others like him of his ethics level. Not a lot. Uh, Bill Offair, I've got a ton of Jerome stories for you because he and I hit it off after all the times backstage at ECW, et cetera. This was after I covered him in Smoky Mountain with Mustafa and, uh, you know, D'Lo joining the fray uh, at a little bit later point on. Jerome would like often call me. He was like, and probably the same to you. And sometimes I just wouldn't pick up. And now that he passed, I'm sorry, you know, asking me to try to help him find movie and TV work in Hollywood after the, uh, uh, Wrestling Society X thing fizzled on uh, MTV and VH1. You know, the whole entire first season didn't even air after a, a fire angle. <clears throat> but um, let's talk about you going to Billy Corgan's NWA weekend. It's a big, huge weekend with uh, night number one, fantastic show available, I think, on Fight and Bleacher reports. S- this coming Saturday, Sunday is night number two. Uh, but tell us what you're going to be doing there and, and what talent you might be uh, having represent you there. And, you know, it sounds like a, an, another super fun weekend. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love uh, what we're doing uh, with the current NWA. I really appreciate uh, Billy Corgan uh, for being nice enough to let me be involved and redeem what I lost uh, after my investment in the NWA for 13, 14, whatever years it was, um, as an owner and then to lose it and to be the guy that literally had to sign the trademark to another person. I literally was the final executive director of pro wrestling organization LSC because everybody else had resigned. And, um, so doing this stuff with Billy has been great and his patience, uh, to build a business, Um, that isn't what everybody else is trying to do. Everybody else is into the, in terms of trying to get over into a larger theater, how do we get bigger? Um, uh, Billy's been smart in that he's understood that the visual product we've presented, albeit on YouTube and then on fight and then fight and YouTube is all a building block to something else but also within a controlled cost and an efficient presentation and a look that is reminiscent of the past and yet very forward momentum. It's certainly not old school in terms of the camera work and the technology, but we're not interested in the larger building being the story, the pyrotechnics being the story, or the ring introduction being more important than the match. The key within the current NWA is to present athletes, to present real conflict, and to allow a suspension of disbelief, and to entertain. 
So there can be nonsense characters because wrestling, even in its old school form, was always a three ring circus. I, uh, I, I always joke with older guys that like to reminisce on back in the day when it was real. I said, yeah, back when men used to wrestle bears, yeah. you know, it's like it, it never was what everyone wants to remember. It was, it simply was easier to convince the audience. It was real. It always was what it was then. And what it is now, the difference now is that we sometimes lose control of the story and the art form, which is what happens in the ring on stage, because wrestling is a unique art form. If you translate the art form primarily to pyrotechnics, which would be the current version of flying all over the place or high spots, you can end up having a problem eventually in terms of things working over time because your pyrotechnics end up taking over. And once you get over on the sizzle, all you can do is to increase that. Exactly. Oh, let me tell you something about speaking of losing control. There was a three ring circus in wrestling. I believe the year was 73. Napolitano and I were there. It was a Johnny Powers, Pedro Martinez thing in, uh, it was either Cleveland or Columbus, Ohio. I think it was Cleveland. And they had three rings in the middle of this baseball field. And there was stuff, tournaments going on in each of the three rings at the same time. A women's, a midget, and a tag tournament. That was to have been one of the reasons we were there was to shoot the first and only time that Wahoo McDaniel would team with Jay Strongbow. Of course, Jay Strongbow was an Italian-American, but uh, Wahoo didn't show, sadly, for that one. Yeah, I, I started watching Jay as Joe Scarpa, and then when right, I, in Florida. I went up to visit my grandmother one time for, for Christmas. All of a sudden, I saw him doing an Indian war dance, and I went, what the? <laughs> How the hell? What happened? How did that? But he was doing the same freaking comeback. It was just different because he would do the war dance when he was when he was strongbow. But he would do the same no sell, no sell. The thing that Hogan finally capitalized on when he did his no sell comeback, which was Jay Strongbow's comeback. He was doing the same thing as Scarpa. He just did it differently. But it was the same thing. So I was I was I was one of my earliest that literally, that was when I was a kid. This is, it had to be, I don't know, 60s. Um, first time I saw it and I was going, oh, you know, it's like first time you see the, pre you know, the right. the stocking stuffing, stuffer presents on, on top of the refrigerator and Santa hasn't delivered them yet. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. You get yeah. smartened up at a, a young yeah, age. Yeah, literally Joe Strong, Scarpa and Strongbow pretty much solidified to me okay, this is more of a work than I was even aware. All right, now, now I'm enjoying this even more because I was into, I was into it from the first time. My first match was Johnny Valentine versus a jobber and he killed the jobber. And of course, years later, I found out that he did kill the jobber, oh. you know, and what I saw was real because that was Johnny Valentine. So my first match, Gordon Soley calling, Johnny Valentine killing a jobber, first match I ever saw. I went, holy crap. <laughs> and that hooked me. You know, how can you, you can't do better. Johnny Valentine is real as real can be in the moment. 
and Gordon Soley calling it like it's legit. It was like, you know, best education a, a person. And I was brought up watching Eddie Graham's stuff. Got the best booker that ever existed in wrestling. Yep. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Valentine was promised the book by Mike LaBelle in 73, August of 73. He came in, he did TV for us, and they were promoing two weeks upcoming huge death match for the America's title, him against his old adversary in Texas, John Tolis. Valentine goes to complete his New Japan tour for Inoki. He gets a phone call from Michael Bell saying he kind of changed his mind, but will he still, you know, on the book, giving him the book, but will he still come in and do the main event? Valentine told me, he told Michael Bell to F himself. So Vince made a nervous call to Vince Sr., sends him Monsoon to do one of the worst main events I'd ever seen because Gino just couldn't do much uh, against Tolis. Valentine then accepts the book immediately. He, he was offered it like days later while he's still in Japan again because he no-showed L.A. in Charlotte. And the first thing he told all the talent was, we're not going to show any light. No light. Lay him in. And... Um, but back to that other story, the, the reason that the Three Ring Circus failed, it, it sadly failed, and the fans, they just couldn't follow it. How can you follow tournaments and then main event matches like Johnny Yeah, yeah. I was, was going to say, that just sounds silly to me. You, is can't, that, you can't, you can only focus on one thing. It's a suspended. It's, I, I, was I was lecturing somebody in a show recently because they did something outside the ring right when the finish was happening that was more that was distracting such that the audience would watch what that person was doing before they would watch the finish. And I was always, I've always taught talent when it's time for the finish, you need to make sure you're not distracting. Even if you're outside brawling, you've got to find a way to slow down and draw attention back to the stage because we are an art form here. We're telling a story based on the beginning, middle, and end of a match. The match's conclusion is the key. It's the curtain call. It's the whole deal. And if you're doing all this stuff over here and we don't see that, then we've just screwed the whole thing because it doesn't matter what else happened if you don't deliver on your finish. So, you know, that's why high spots don't matter is they have nothing to do with the finish. Yeah, yeah, they're, exactly. they're pyrotechnics. That's problem. Yeah, that's the problem. I love that term you have for pyrotechnics because I have a problem with that. There's no psychology there. Oh, there and can somebody, be. There can be. Sure. But but you have to do that. You, you, just have, to connect, you have to connect the dots. There has to be trans transitions, one thing leading into another. And sometimes, like some of these guys... If you you know what I'm talking about backstage, they go. Oh, all I want to do is get my shit in. Yeah, it's high spots for the sake of getting high spots in, which are just fireworks for the sake of fireworks. Nobody remembers the fireworks display, and particularly the crescendo of it. It's just a bunch of stuff happening, and and nobody comes home and goes, "Do you remember that one firework?" And in wrestling, everybody should go home going, "Do you believe what happened at the end of that match?" That's all they remember is the finish anyway. That's all and it should be. But unfortunately, sometimes we try to load so much in the front end of what we do that by the time we get to the finish, nobody cares. But that brings us back to Valentine putting like a headlock on uh, Jack Briscoe and sitting there laying on it for however many minutes. 
and the audience going crazy because it's building to a crescendo, something as simple as that that's meaningful. There, no one would today have the patience to watch. You know, I know. Like I said, I watched Dory and Jack go 60, and it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Yep. Um, but I don't believe that the current audience would have the patience for that. And now if you do it, it's a stunt because you're just trying to do it as opposed to doing it because it's what the business needs at the moment. Right now, right now, our stories are best told in 10 to 15 minute chunks, unfortunately, um, because that's what our television product has built us toward. And even our live event programming has built us toward, you know, we're the average TV match is four to six minutes. The average main event match, the arena match is 10 to 15 minutes. So we're really not in the uh, business we were years ago where you could do a four or five match card and it would be plenty because you'd have an hour in your main. I mean, and you knew it was going to be that and that was what it expected. If you didn't have an hour or 45 minutes or more in your main event, that the crowd would have rebelled back in the day. Now the crowd would be bored if you did that. Yeah, with a boring chest. Two things I'll end with. That's what reminded me of uh, Dory Senior's territory in Amarillo. He might got, have a max six, seven, eight guys total on one show, and he might pair them up in singles and then bring them together in a tag. Maybe three, have six three singles, three singles, and a six man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that classic stuff. And uh, the fact that Vern Gagne on his TV, which was it was must watch in the seventies because it eventually replaced the uh, studio stuff that uh, uh, Ed Francis, promoter Ed Francis and Lord Tally Ho, James Blears would do. They would bring in uh, Vern's TV. So I'd, I'd sit and watch that, et cetera. But Vern had typically one major angle a year. If that one a year, one every year and a half. Now, say Raw or SmackDown, and this is say pre, when it was still Vince, pre Hunter, pre Levesque era, uh, you have multiple angles every show. You definitely have you have to have a lot of coffee to uh, to keep up with everything in AEW. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but but it, and AEW is not a good example because uh, the young man booking it is only is learning as he's going, and that's not disrespectful. Tony only knows what he knows, and he just happens to be a really rich guy that has the ability to learn on the fly. And in either well, the, I think the unfortunate thing. Um, early on, I, I never had money to throw at wrestling. So thank God for that. But, you know, th you know, bless his heart that he does because a lot of people are getting paid, but you can't learn and be booking yourself because you're not, you can't learn from yourself. Uh, I was blessed that I worked with Jerry Jarrett trained by Eddie Graham. I worked with Dutch Mantel trained by Eddie Graham. I worked with Dusty Rhodes trained by Eddie Graham. Um, I worked with people that had a basic foundation and you talk about one angle and I was not a fan of Vern's booking um, because Vern was that guy. He didn't like to book a lot of stuff. And I think you need to pay attention to your whole card. And that's what I learned from watching Eddie Graham in the 60s and 70s. His entire card was something that was interesting. There was no throwaway. You know, there was an angle underneath with Dale Lewis uh, wrestling Joe Scar. It was Dale Lewis, Joe Scarpa, Battle of the Sleepers underneath. And you still had Eddie or Dusty or um, uh, Hero or Malenko or, or Jr. 
all the guys that were the main event guys and but but you all the way up and down the card you know i'd be i'd go to i would see a show at the nikki auditorium and in the opening match was bearcat right i mean come on (laughs) you know and as a fan, oh, wait, I saw, wait, I saw Dick the Bruiser and Boa Brazil in the opener in a tag at Keo once. And I it blew my mind. Yeah. But you're seeing all, I mean, all these people um, and just you can see different versions of, you know, as, as I became a fan, that was the fun part for me was you'd see the changes people had from one place to another, like Raul Mata, for example, would, would work uh, in the Lucha Libre shows and was one guy, but then he could come to the East Coast and be another guy a little bit. Well, he um, started, he came up from Mexico City, the Luteroff promotion, the oldest one in the world at like 83 years old. He started for us in L.A. He was there from uh, early 1970 through about 75, and then he moved to Florida to retire, and he worked for Eddie Graham, where you right. saw him. That's where I saw him after, but I had seen him on Lucha Libre de Este, the Canal 23, Miami Folito, Canal de Rito. Oh, I that was to... our syndicated show. We had two shows in L.A. Yeah. Even and, and the first time I saw Romata, he came down to the ring with his cheeks all puffy to wrestle uh, Ernie. And Ernie was doing the tape thumb gimmick, and he right. grabbed him, and he thumb, thumb, thumb. And, of course, Raul Alta came to the ring, and it was obvious he had, like, a ton of red stuff in his mouth. It was, like, so obvious. But, but it was great. And he came down, and, and, you know, and then he gets stabbed. All of a sudden, he starts oozing blood out of his mouth. And uh, That was 1972 when Spanish International Network, SIN, syndicated our Wednesday night, Lucha Libre from the Olympic Auditorium. Desde Olympic Auditorium, su canal. Yeah, Lucha R- Libre. Richmond, Nueve Cinco Siete Uno, the RI9571. Yeah, oh, but yeah, no, no. That, it helped me learn. It helped me with my Spanish back in the day. That was. Un tremendo golpe, un golpe, un tremendo golpe. But That's the insane it. thing, and I know we're wrapping up here for Jonathan, the insane thing was our syndicated Hispanic show taped Wednesdays at the Olympic Auditorium, and you guys get it in New York, Boston, and a lot of places in Florida. About a week later, we had an all-English version, the Primo one, where all the angles happened on Saturday uh, with Dick Lane and Jimmy Lennon Sr. Oh, I love I love the Spanish one. I was I, I was a huge. Uh, but the uh, insane thing was Gorman, Gorman have, and Goliath as heels. I was a huge Gorman and Goliath heel fan. I loved them. They were awesome. I, I shot him a million times. Drove and was it Pablo? That's great Goliath's funeral. And Blassie and Blassie was in there at the time. Yes, he may have been booking even. Maniac Tolis and Victor Rivera. But the insane thing was the guys doing the English interviewing of the locker room. And the locker room was actually just the door that led to the wrestlers part of the parking lot. It wasn't a locker room. The locker room was downstairs. They never filmed it there. So they would have Gene LaBelle often who just died. And I'm going to speak at his memorial in October. Uh, He would interview the Lucha guys like Gorman and Goliath, Mata, uh, Carlos Mata, Mascaris, and then they'd have the Hispanic guy, the lead commentator, Miguel Alonso, interviewing yeah. the English guys. Miguel could barely speak English. Gene could speak no Spanish. It made no sense, but it was still fun. It was insane. Yeah. I never got to work with the LaBelles, but a tremendous respect uh, for their impact on our business. It's just a tremendous job. You know, uh, Gene was the godfather of grappling. I mean, the fans, all they would see is the short, schlubby guy interviewing the wrestlers. Yeah, but the whole, like, the whole, the whole, as you know well, the whole history of Los Angeles wrestling is is tied around once the LaBelles got involved. And, 
so many different people flowed in and out of that thing, but they, they remained a constant um, and managed to survive all the way through that. And just well, Eileen Eaton, who was the mother of uh, Gene and Mike, Eileen Eaton promoted the boxing, but she was married to Cal Eaton. Now, Cal Eaton, and when he died, she put his, or she put it, well, uh, Cal's stepson, meaning her son, Mike LaBelle, in charge of the wrestling, because Eileen wanted no part of that. And then she, with Mike, promoted the boxing, and they allotted 10% of Cal's estate to go to Gene, and they finally said, well, you got to do something to earn your 10%. So he didn't want to have any part of the pro wrestling. He was a straight judo martial arts guy. You know, working with Bruce Lee and uh, uh, Chuck Norris, etc. But he he learned to you know he was fairly okay with that. Uh, but he, he didn't like it at first, and he got to be really close friends with Tolis and Blassie and you know Raul Mata and Cowboy Frankie Lane and Killer Kowalski and, and stuff. But I better throw let's uh, I want to throw to Jonathan, but let's have you Bill plug anything and everything you'd like. Of course, the NWA is this weekend. You can order. Yeah, that's the big key. Pay per view, pay per view on Saturday and Sunday. We've got three days of TV tapings after that that will fuel NWA Power, NWA USA, and all the various other things we do. Um, don't know when it's going to be announced for sure, but there's some cool stuff coming from NWA, including some potential series television. Um, and there is ongoing interest in the NWA transitioning from its right now digital the digital theaters uh, to broadcast cable and other outlets. Uh, but Billy is being smart and creating an efficiently produced product that I think will end up being very attractive to broadcast because the other product that's already on is already at the, we're going to blow everything up and we're going to try to be as big as possible, the high end expense side. And there's room for something that's different. And I think the NWA has captured that by taking a step backward and look that I find very positive. I'm a big fan of studio wrestling. My, the oh, one of my greatest, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of my greatest moments in wrestling was I hosted the final USWA live 90 minute show as the lead announcer. Um, and I interviewed uh, Lance Russell recovering from heart surgery at the time in the hospital live. And that, you know, at that point I could have given up my entire career. Literally. It was just because that format. And if you think about it, that was only two cameras and one that could barely move. I mean, the cameras were gigantic, so there wasn't a lot of movement on the cameras. Now, we're still in that environment, but the camera movement is better. And NWA is capitalizing on a look that was popularized uh, in USWA, which is to get the camera as close as possible to the talent. Um, uh, and to, to not USWA, excuse me, uh, 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 world class. To get, the, to get the camera close to the talent, to, to bring the, the audience into the ring. And so when you talk about Johnny Valentine saying everything needs to be tight or no air, that is very much uh, our requirement at NWA. Uh, we don't want anybody to get hurt. But at the same time, we, we are trying to reflect the product as it should be reflected, which is as a serious athletic contest. Let me just and say I, this about and I the, think we're and I think we're doing it well, and the athletes that are doing it are doing a great job, and I'm blessed that a number of them are my clients. So that's cool. 
Billy Corgan came to a bunch of CACs. I knew him when he first got involved in wrestling with a small, a smaller Chicago indie. It wasn't Sammy DeCiro's. Windy City before, or something? When, yeah, yeah if, before TNA. But I like the fact, and I do want to give props to Tony Khan, because I like the fact that these guys, Tony and Billy especially, have a lot of heart. They grew up as wrestling marks, wrestling fans. Uh, Tony Khan grew up going his dad took him to ecw a ton of ecw shows yeah actually they both they both were a big ecw fans so that's that's weird i mean it's because both of them ended up having their first ex sort of experiences at an ecw level you know tony is a fan billy as as being backstage at the time and participating exactly yeah exactly and but uh these guys have a heart you know this was when we weren't seeing that from vince jr and you know they are erudite intelligent guys they have a lot of money so they can do things right i absolutely love what i've seen uh since billy has done the nwa i love studio wrestling as you do yeah, there's a magic to it you know it doesn't always have to be these gigantic mammoth arenas i, I love I, I love i love a podium and a promo i love a podium and a good promo if, if you can uh if you can tell me in 30 seconds why you matter, uh, that's the one of the great parts of this business. That's the beauty and, of Lance Russell, Dave Brown, Corey Macklin in the you know Memphis, and, yeah, and and to Bill be able Mercer to feed, in the, in and Dallas. then on the opposite side, the Jerry Lawlers, the Billy Dundees, um, the uh, you know Dream Dutch, Machines, Dutch, of course, the Dream Machines, all the guys that could talk. Um, Austin because, Idol. Uh, you're talking Austin Idol, obviously. We, uh, and we get to have Austin, which is freaking awesome. But the guys that can that they had to talk you into the building, and that still matters. Um, because that's all part of the whole op soap opera that we build. I mean, you, you can't you can try to present a match and you always can. You can establish the heel and the baby face, you can create a reason why the crowd cares, and you can deliver a finish. You can always do that in any match that's matchmaking but to tell a story you really do need to give it some meat and that's where the promo is key and if you can't talk in wrestling it's always what's going to hold you back at some level unless you simply have a gimmick that can get past it we talked about abdullah he had a gimmick that could get past it somebody else could talk he never had to sabu never had to uh, there's certain people where you can get away with just being mysterious, but that's the exception, not the rule. Otherwise, you better be able to talk people into being interested in you and in what you're doing. And that's a lot of what the NWA does really, really well. It's uh, fantastic. I believe Trevor Murdoch is defending the NWA title against Tyrus, who's got a brand new book out. That we... Which will be interesting. Tyrus is an, is amazing. I mean, that's, that's an interesting match because that's... Um, for some people, that's going to be a nightmare. For others, it's going to be a dream because Tyrus is a big monster. He moves slow and everything he does looks real. And, uh, you know, Murdoch trained by Harley is uh, is the real deal. I mean, he can go. I've worked with him since the early part of TNA when he was a dub. Um, and uh, he's he's as good now as he was then. And he's almost coming into his own. And as a champion, he's been brilliant. And Nick Aldis is on the card and having a good match with Flip Gordon, former champion. And uh, without Nick Flip Aldis... Flip Gordon is one of the most impressive guys. If you love high spots, Flip is one of the most amazing guys. Big Japan career. Yeah, yeah. And, and 
you know, and, and Aldis was the guy. I mean, without Aldis uh, well, and Billy, and yeah, Billy backing hardest. him, yeah, Billy and Aldis together rebuilt NWA. the NWA. Hmm? Aldis is the heart and soul of the current NWA, no question. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and backs it up. Backs it up in the way Jonathan, talks, we better let you close this out here. <laughs> well, I just wanted to ask final question because of what you've been talking about a little bit. And that being the attention span of fans, whether it be 10 to 15 minute matches and everything you guys were just discussing. I'd be curious to know if the mentality of the fan base could be changed to I'm not saying a 20-minute headlock like Johnny Valentine would do. But, you know, meet somewhere in the middle to change the mentality. If you build build the story and you get the people to want it, yes. But you just can't deliver it without setup. But, yeah, you can deliver anything still. You You can still deliver a longer story, but you have to have the right two people. You have to have convinced the audience to get invested. Um, you can book people to anything right now. For example, Taz's kid that's going by the name hook is being built as a monster. Uh, and he's winning matches in one to three minutes. Problem with that is, can he do a 10 minute match or will it, betray what he hasn't learned yet because he hasn't had a chance to really wrestle you know so you can book people into any spot but you have to be careful how much you can give the audience before you betray yourself so it's the same thing of could we book two people to a match where people would be willing to watch them wrestle for 45 minutes yes could you do it with any two people no because that would be boring I wouldn't care. And I don't. And uh, unlike old time wrestling, where we were more patient to allow our interest to grow through the match itself. Nowadays, you've got to be interested in that match going in totally or you're not going to invest yourself at all. You're not going to start watching a long match and stick with it if you're not already invested. You just won't. Which is back in the day, people might because it was a different business. And also it, it helped that there were fewer choices. You know, it's like back when wrestling was at its, you know, when it was getting its biggest audiences in theory of a percentage of audience, not the largest number of people. You know, we have to all remember that there was like, what, three stations in most cities, three to five stations. There was no cable. When I got started, there was cable was in less than 50% of the country. When I was putting stuff on TV, that's why TV mattered. Now TV doesn't matter really unless you're on a big league TV and that puts you into the big money area. Mm-hmm. Small TV doesn't matter for anybody. Guess somebody that says they're on some local TV station, bless your heart. Thank God you are. And I hope you're not spending too much money. <laughs> yeah, because, and that's why it's good that Billy is doing the way he's doing it with the digital platforms and fight. Yeah, and build interest like in build interest in the product, build it as an asset that somebody wants to invest money in and bring farther along and then take a logical next step. You don't go for what we're doing and all of a sudden start doing arena, right? That would mm-hmm. be stupid because we're not built for arena. We're built for smaller theater, closer, closer product, more intimate character development, storytelling, different. 
you know, and that's where the NWA today reflects the NWA of the past and at the same time provides itself with a niche in the business. Same uh, prospect, that's for sure. But definitely going to have to have you back. Is there any place people can find you, Bill, if they wish to see yeah, what's going yeah, on all, in your world? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm all over the social media. I'm on the Twitter. I'm on the Facebook. I, I, I don't get the Instagram, but I'm on the Instagram. Um, you know, they, the Instagram makes no sense to me because it's instant. Like I, everything I want, I, I look at the Internet still as a website. So like you know, Facebook, I like because the stuff stays there. And it's sort of a collection of stuff that, you know, you're like put your own little website together mm-hmm. uh, and Twitter's fine. It's just a bunch of meaningless statements and pictures. But, yeah, I'm on the Twitter as William Barron's um, either either Bill Barron's. My hardest but if you can put my name into a search engine, you'll find me. It's B-E-H-R-E-N-S. The worst spelling ever. Um, Thanks, mom and dad. Sp- if you can spell my name. You can find me everywhere. I'm I'm all over the Google. It's a good thing. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Bill. Thank you. Fun so time. Great, so great finally connecting with my brother, Bill. And uh, I told you he was going to be one of the greatest guests on the planet. He was. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Going to have to do another marathon with him, that's for sure. Ah, story. Another story frenzy. I can tell you the story of New Jack breaking a rule I never knew would be broken, and we can leave with this if you want. And do you know what that rule was? Nope. What would that be? He was living at my house, and I told him he could stay here unless he broke one rule, and the rule was no crack. So there we go. <laughs> well, he, is, he, holds the, he holds the record as the only person to break the no crack rule. <laughs> Uh, on that note, Domenicato Gosaimashte, Bill. Combate Kurasai. Mazel tov. Oh, and, and, and to end this thing as we started, rest in peace, Howard. Yes. Boom, boom. And we're not talking, uh, no, <laughs> Cole Cabana. Cole Cabana. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. He's still feuding with CM Punk. Yeah. yeah. Boy, boy, does uh, Bill know his stuff. He knows everything that's going on right now. chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my God. Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being keel or having extreme depression. Ah, come on. Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my.
Hi, I'm former WWE superstar Al Snow, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. 